Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than those little hot wheel cars that changed colour when you put them in water. They were fun. My name's Ash Rose, your host and your guide on this, the original 1990s football podcast. And we're still alive and kicking because this is episode three in our August miniseries where we are celebrating 30 years of the Premier League by going back to the launch year, 1992-93, and that famous advert that Sky did at the time to launch the Premier League. Yes, it was called Alive and Kick In. Yes, it was themed by that tune that you just heard in the intro by Simple Minds. And we've been on a mission. Well, we're, we're on some kind of mission. We were going to speak to every single, or try at least to try and get a portion of the class of 92-93 and get them on the podcast. While me and Ed are on our holidays and trying to get proper episodes to you, we've got these mini-series where I've been speaking to some of the cast of 1992-93, and this is episode three for you. So last time out, we spoke to David Hurst. Thank you very much, David, and I really enjoyed his chat and looking back at uh, his time at uh, Sheffield Wednesday, the, the move that didn't happen to Man United and all that. So go back if you haven't listened to it already. And next in line, so the way I've done this, as I'm literally just going, I'm going left to right, people, left to right on that famous Sky Sports advert. So next to David Hurst was Manchester United midfielder, winger, wearing a number five. Don't worry, we're going to get into that. Lee Sharp. Yeah, Lee Sharp, massive personality of the time, massive, one of those first real kind of famous footballers outside of football, you know, the match and shoot generation, as I like to call it. You know, him, Giggsy, and go on to Jamie Redknapp, the Spice Boys and all that. We get into all that. He now lives in Spain, Lee. Um, he's just opened a bar there called Sharpies, which is brilliant. Um, and he was really generous with his time. Um, so this quick intro is to this third episode of Still Alive and Kicking. So this is Manchester United's representative from that advert 30 years ago. Still Alive and Kicking, Lee Sharp. Before you get stuck into the brand new episode of Alive and Kicking, I'm delighted to announce a partnership with the amazing Footy Devotion. Footy Devotion have a brilliant range of t-shirts, coasters, prints and mugs, all illustrated by the amazing team at Footy Devotion and inspired by the 1990s as well, with a special range dedicated to Italian 90. And because you listen to Alive and Kicking, the original 1990s football podcast, you can get 10% off your order. Simply use the code AK90s at the checkout and you'll get 10% off. That's AK90s, so AK90S and 10% off your order. Jobs are good at. Check out Footy Devotion on Twitter at Footy Devotion and the whole range. I've got a few myself. I've got the brilliant 3pm sweatshirt. I'm looking at a brilliant QPR print kit I've got on my wall. And there's loads and loads to choose from, from World Cups to clubs and many, many more. So check out Footy Devotion. And as always, Keep it 90s. Um, I wanted basically to kick off as if we were in 1992. Obviously, by this point, Lee Sharp was a fully established first-teamer, PFA Player of the Year already, Young Player of the Year at Man United. What was that time, that sort of early 90s time like for you uh, as, as a footballer and as a person? Uh, it, it was it was probably a bit of a dream world, to be honest. Uh, like you said, I was only 19. I'd scored a hat-trick. I'd played for England. Um, 
I've got young paid player, player of the year. I'd only been at the club a couple of years. I'd only, I was only sort of three years out of school. So it all sort of happened in a bit of a blur. And before I knew it, um, the, the, the club was, Manchester as a whole was, was growing with the music scene. The club, you know, we started to become successful. Uh, it, it, it was like a perfect storm to be fair. It was, it was a wonderland. It's, I mean, you're often one of the names mentioned and you talk about the scene growing in Manchester and footballers becoming celebrities, if you want, and, you know, covers of Match magazine and, and things like that. How, how, what was your mindset? How did you feel at that point? Did you, was you aware of this or was it kind of just going along for the ride at that age? I was, it was just going along for the ride, to be fair. Um, I think I think, think when you're at a club like Manchester, you get a little bit more publicity than most anyway. Uh, and then when Sky came in and there were more sort of TV coverage, more publicity, uh, it, it was it was more of a gradual thing because obviously I've been there since 88 yeah. when there weren't, some, there weren't so many live games. Uh, there wasn't so much publicity about it. Yeah, there was Shooting Match magazine, but that was about it. Mm. Uh, and it was a sort of gradual thing. So I think we all... We also grew into it, and as the team grew and got more successful, the game was growing as a whole. So I think it was uh, it was just one of them funny timings. And for you as a player, you came from Torquay straight to such a gigantic club like Manchester United. What was that? What was that like? And what was the transition like from playing for you know, don't no disrespect, a small club like Torquay to going to one of the the biggest clubs in the world? It was petrifying. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I'd, I'd gone from a 16-year-old kid at Torquay playing. I think I only started six or seven games at Torquay, so it wasn't like I was a a real regular. Uh, and then to get to Man United, I remember going up there for a couple of days. Um, sort of towards the end of the season when I signed before the start start my contract, I went up for a couple of days and and trained with the reserves. And I just remember the, the first touch being absolutely unbelievable and. It was like I was wearing trampolines on my feet, the ball was bouncing all over the place. And these guys are just killing it stone dead from every angle, from where, however hard the ball's coming. Um, and, it, and when I first got there, it was just a time of knuckle down and try and be as good as, as these lads. And uh, it, it was a shock and it was petrifying. But also, on the flip side of that, Manchester United as a club is a pretty family feel club. So everybody welcomes you, everybody's really warm, everybody wants the, the team to do well, the club to do well. Uh, and, and with Alex Ferguson there, he turned into a bit of a siege mentality. Yeah. So it was against the world, so everyone was really close-knit within the club and it, and it felt probably a lot smaller from the inside than it, than it looked from the outside. You mentioned Alex there. Obviously, as you say, he was this figurehead um, of the club, but he, he famously kept some of the young lads away from the media, like Ryan Giggs famously and, and somewhat yourself. But what was he like trying to keep a leash on you guys? Obviously, you had this lifestyle outside of football that was growing, as we've already mentioned. Was Fergie aware of that? And was was there kind of boundaries that you broke with him and, and things like that? How, how, did, how did that kind of relationship happen? Yeah, I think, I think uh, I don't know whether we ever broke boundaries, but we certainly bent them a little bit and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, pushed, and pushed them as far as we could, yeah. uh, which, which, uh, which didn't make him best pleased, if I'm honest. Uh, we, we all had a few runnings. It wasn't just me and Giggs. It was the older pros as well. I think, um, you know, sometimes you forget that as a footballer, you are late teens, early 20s. Um, and there's a lot of life you've still yet to discover. 
Um, and, and with football as a fine line between the discipline and, and actually being able to live a bit of a life as well as a, as a young man. Uh, so I think we all crossed or pushed boundaries at certain times, the older pros as well as the younger pros. And that's all part of, you know, the, the, the manager pulling you in line, you accepting that you've done wrong. You pay your fine, you knuckle down, you get back on with it and you learn from your mistakes. So, um, like I said, the, the, the town was buzzing, the fans was buzzing, the, the club was buzzing at the time. So it was just, um, it was it was a hard time to stay, especially because we a few of us were single as well. It was, a, it was a hard time to stay indoors on your own. Was it who was in that group you used to go out with? Was it you and Geeksy, or was there a, you know, a group of younger lads that used to explore that scene? Uh, at first, it was uh, it was probably me, Giggsy, and a few of Giggsy's school pals. Uh, and then I sort of moved on. Giggsy sort of knocked, started knocking around with Incy a little bit more, and I started knocking around with Gary Pallister, Roy Keane. Um, Keno on the town, eh? <laughs> Keno on the town. He's, uh, he's actually one of the funniest blokes you'll ever meet. Yeah. Do you know what? Um, I get that now. Like, I, I, I think his dalliance with punditry and he's opening up with things with Mika Richards and stuff. I don't know if you've seen that on, on his YouTube stuff, but I think you can see how funny Roy is now. Yeah, he's, he's hilarious. Uh, I mean, I mean, catch him on a bad day when he's in a bad mood. He's not so yeah. funny. But uh, I have to say, um, every day we turned up to training, we were we were giggling like two school kids in the, in the dressing room. And I have to ask you, and you've probably been asked this a million times in your career, the dance, the celebration dance. Where did that come from? Was it off the cuff or was it from the dance floor of Manchester? What made you do it and, and become a Lee, a Lee Sharp trademark? <laughs> um, it was, I, I, scored, I scored the hat-trick at Highbury yeah. uh, on, a, on a carpet of a pitch that had got a little bit of dew on it, so it was nice and wet and so I did a couple of knee slides and I think I did a forward roll and then went to Everton on the Saturday after the Tuesday night game. And the pitch, uh, no disrespect to Goodison, but it was a little bit like a farmer's field. <laughs> but, so I just joked with Incy saying, I can't, I'm not going to have to slide on my knees today. Because that's, that's as much as I was going to do, really. Knee yeah. slides was all I ever had in my head. Um, I said, I can't do my knee slides today. I said, because I'll, I'll end up doing my cruise ship. So, so he just said, oh, you have to think of something else then. And, and funnily enough, I'd caught a glimpse of I think an American footballer scoring a touchdown and he did a similar sort of dance and I just sort of copied that. Then, then got a, a right good rollicking off the manager after the game for doing it. Uh, and then I was sort of caught between, well, do I stop or do I enjoy the yeah. sort of the moments after scoring that you, they're not going to pass your way again? So um, I sort of took the, uh, took the initiative and, and kept doing stupid dance. And then people would sort of say, oh, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? And it was never sort of choreographed. It was just like, like I've seen a film, if I've seen someone on TV, I'd do my version. So it was all, uh, there was, there's nothing really original there, I don't think. And looking at 1992, before we talk about the start of the Premier League, obviously you'd won the League Cup, League Cup final at the end of 1992. Obviously you came on a sub in that game. What was that occasion like for you, playing at Wembley in that favourite kit of everyone that they love? Um, what, what was that like? What was that occasion like for you? It's always a mixed bag when you're not in the starting eleven. It's always a little bit of a disappointing day because you're not playing. Uh, but, but I mean, the atmosphere you can you can feel the nerves. Um, I mean, the, the build up to the game as soon as you get as soon as you win the semis, that's when that's when the final really starts. So you have a build up for a couple of two or three weeks, maybe four weeks sometimes. Um, you, you get down to London into the hotel, the drive on the bus down Wembley Way, and the, and the fans are being packed and. The sun's generally shining. It's usually a boiling up day. Uh, the whole thing is, uh, it's a little bit surreal. It, it's really nerve-wracking. 
but exciting. Uh, it's unbelievable to be a part of and uh, and even better to win when, when you get there. It's the, the loneliest place to lose. Yeah. When everyone says the semi-final is the worst one, but I can tell you from, from experience, uh, losing a cup final is, is horrendous. Because you lost the, was it the previous year to Sheffield Wednesday? Were you part of that? You were part of that squad, weren't you, as well? Yeah, I mean, the, the year we lost to Sheffield Wednesday, we'd, we'd beaten Liverpool, Arsenal and Leeds in the, in the running to that uh, and then got beat by Sheffield Wednesday. So, yeah, I think I think the disappointment of Sheffield Wednesday sort of uh, had a strong motivation towards us winning the year after. And what were the celebrations like after that? I can't remember. <laughs> <Good answer. laughs> uh, I think, you know, I, I can't remember one from the other. We, I think we stayed down in London. Yeah. Um, was that 1990? Was it 1991? That was 92, that League Cup. 92. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember that. I can't remember the League Cup final because that comes a bit earlier in the season. I can't remember if we stayed down or went back home for that because we might have had a game a few yeah. days later. Probably did, yeah. Uh, but generally, I played Cup final. We stayed in London at a hotel, at a big party for family and friends. And uh, they're, they're usually uh, long, drawn out affairs that last about a month. <laughs> well, you had a few of <laughs> In that decade, yeah, let's be honest. Um, let's talk about the advert then. Um, what do you remember first of all about being asked, or how do you how you found out about the advert? Because I've heard different stories from the guys I've spoken to that some thought it was all the captains, some just were just plucked. Do you remember how you were approached or told you were going to be in this Sky launch advert? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think I think I'd been in a bit of trouble with the manager and as a punishment. He said, "You're going to London for a team photo." Okay, no problem. What trouble you been in, Lee? Do you remember? Uh, I, I have no idea. I, that I have no idea. I've either spoke to the press or I've been out somewhere or I've been seen somewhere I shouldn't have been. Um, but yeah, it was a punishment for me. Right, okay. And what do you remember about the day? Because obviously there was a, the, the shoot, as far as I'm aware, was across the weekend. I've spoke to some other players. Some stayed the night before and had a, a night afterwards. I've heard rumours out or... Some just went out on the day and did the shoe. Were you what? What camp did you fall in? Do you know what? I can't. I can't remember. I think uh, I, off the top of my head, I think I might have gone down the night before for the photo shoot that day and then gone straight back. I'm not. I'm not sure I went out with many lads after. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember a lot about the shoot. I remember it being me being quite nervous because obviously I was still pretty young. Yeah. Um, and there were a lot of experienced players there, uh, but thankfully, um, Vinnie Jones took to me and uh, and looked after me. Uh, it, it was funny because that, that's what that's when I met Vin Jones, and then it might have been later that 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 season. Uh, was it late that season? They came to Old Trafford and beat us one 0 uh, and they came with the ghetto blaster. I might I might be getting timings mixed up, but at some point after me meeting him there, Wimbledon have come. They've got the ghetto blaster blasting. We've never seen anything like it before. They're dancing up and down the corridor. They're drinking beers after the game, smoking cigars. And I come I come walking out of our dressing room. Obviously, we've we've taken a rollicking because we've just been beaten at home one 0 and Vinny Jobs walked out the dressing room towards the physio room to get a bag of ice. And, uh, and Vinny's in the corridor and he shouts down, Charmy! Where's the party tonight, son? I'm like, oh, no, don't shout that really, please. The gaffer's listening. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it, was an ex- it was an experience and a half to meet Vinny Jobs. I imagine he was quite the life and soul on the set because he's, you know, looking at the players that were involved, there were some experienced guys like Gordon Strachan and Gordon Jury, but I imagine Vinnie Jones was quite the, the voice and, and, and fun of the party on set. Yeah, you, you turn out, I mean, Gordon Strachan and, and Jury would have been sort of the older, experienced pros in that in that photo, and, and they're generally 
over the madness at, at that age. And they're, they're a little bit quieter and are quiet to sit there and have a cup of tea and chat about football, whereas the younger ones are always uh, a little bit more lively to, to make a mark, I think. Yeah, because I've watched this video, the the advert video, hundreds and hundreds of times speaking to the guys as well. And I, you know, I was surprised you weren't featured as much as others, because obviously at the time, as we've discussed, you were such in the limelight, but you're more in the background in a towel and stuff. Did, I mean, do you remember things like that? Because there were shower scenes and walking around in just towels. Was was that daunting on set or something footballers are just just you two? Uh, I, I think you were, uh, I think you just get used to just, naked around people. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I think some people are probably a little bit more conscious of it than others. Um, but, you know, it's, it's something that it has to happen every day. So you just sort of get over it, get used to it and, and deal with it, whether you like it or whether you don't. It's just, uh, if, if you're going to find find a problem in it, then it's going to it's gonna linger around a long time. So I, th- I think we just, I, I don't remember a lot of the video and what, what we have to do. I remember the team photo. Um and, and loads of joking going on and they couldn't get the photo done for a while. Um, and, and seeing the picture after, the picture was, was really impressive with a with player from every team. Mm. And the way they did it, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was a really good, good shot. And, and did you get any stick from United lads on the way back so once they'd seen the, sh- the photo and the advert? Was there any banter in the, in the changing rooms about it? No, I think they were all just pleased that they didn't have to go down and do it themselves. Yeah. So it, was, it, was, it was sort of muggings here that... <laughs> Got self-volunteered to do it. <laughs> and did it, I mean, obviously that was the launch of the Premier League. Were you kind of, with this kind of advert, were you kind of starting to think that something was changing as, as we've seen the scene outside of football was, was growing? But did you sense that Sky, with this massive advert that they've launched, the money that started to come to could, could you sense that it was changing? I think, I think we knew something was about to change, but not really sure how or, or what was going to happen. Uh, the, the, you know, there was, there was obviously the more money coming in, so, so people were going to start expecting bigger wages. Um, live games started to come more frequently, yeah. which, uh, which I think, again, for me, I, I found quite nerve-wracking at a live game. I don't know if the older players did, but as a young lad, when we first started playing live games, I found that really nerve-wracking. Um, so, yeah, we knew it was changing, but, but again, I think it was a more gradual thing. We did see players come into the team I think Keeney came in and, and the wage structure went up but, but that was always something that that happened organically anyway you know there's, yeah. there's always pay rises throughout the years so uh, so I think it probably took a a couple of years of it before we sort of saw a big change and a big markup in the money and, and the wages and, and our transfer fees were going and, and it's still going on today but um, yeah. yeah it was more of a gradual thing on, on the ground level apart from live games I don't think we really would have seen much difference the first year or two. And talking about the, that season, it went into the first season of the Premier League. I often think your name gets kind of, not forgotten, but because you missed a chunk of that start, because I think you, you contracted meningitis, didn't you, at the start of, of that season? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not always mentioned, but you played, I think, I've read sort of 27 games that year. What was it like being in a Premier League winning side? Well, for, for us, for us, it was uh, it was... It was particularly sweet because the last first division we just missed out on the league to Leeds. Leeds, yeah. Uh, so, so you know, as we could all see, the club gradually progressing, progressing from you know FA Cup in in ninety, Cup Winners Cup in ninety one, and then to lose the league to Leeds was bitterly disappointing. And uh, the nucleus of the team, the majority of the team, was still there for the next year, and 
you know, we had a we had a big speech off the manager, and then a big speech off by Robson towards the end, and we and we, like I said about the League Cup losing Sheffield Wednesday, motivated us to go and to win the season after. I think that's exactly how that happened. We we all felt how hard it was losing the league to Leeds when we thought, felt we should have won it, and we and we probably lost it due to our own nerves. Um, that we weren't going to let that happen, and we we're going to go on and, and make sure we did it right. So uh, I, I don't think it was. I don't think it was sort of conscious that it was a different trophy we were playing for. I think it was just the title we were after. And uh, yeah, to, to lift the first one is, is always pretty special. And, and by this point, you obviously left side had been your position, but Ryan had come in as well. What was that like? Because you're both, you know, phenomenal players. You both came in and made a big splash. Was there a big rivalry for that position? I know you moved across to the right at points as well, but how, how, what, what does that dynamic like for you? No, I mean, not not between me and Giggs, you know, there was, there was never any any sort of riff like that. I mean, I, I remember Giggs getting into the team at 17, I think, and he was starting and I was sub, and I, I remember, I can't remember who he was playing against, but I was, I was trying to give him a bit of advice about the fullback he was playing against. Uh, and, and the manager was like, oh, fair play, but that's that's what we want to see. I was like, oh, it's not, it's not his fault that he's been picked over me. It's your fault, yeah. you, I don't like, not him. <laughs> so... Uh, no, and I think at a club like Man United, you always you always know there's not just you in the position. You know, before before Ryan, there was Jasper Olsen, there was Danny Wallace, there was Ralph Milne. Um, you know, we had a, an Italian lad, Giuliano Moirana, that, that came yeah. in and played a, a few times. So there's always been Thornley, was always on the fringes of the first team. So um, at a club like United, you know your place is never safe and, and there's always someone that's going to take it. Was there huge pressure? Because I remember growing up watching that season and it was all about the 26 years it was all about the season before as you mentioned did you deal with the pressure better because of the de- determination to make up for the previous season is that how you as a as, as a squad dealt with it yeah I, I think uh, I think Brian Robson played a played a huge role uh, I think he realised that the season before against Leeds we were in we were in the driving seat and then all got nervous and I think the nerves came predominantly from the manager and then down to the senior players. So, so I think Brian Robson was the man that stood up and, and sort of said, listen, we're not going to lose it to us. And also, let's not forget, we had Eric Cantona in the team who, in pressure situations, seems to grow two foot rather than shrink two foot. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we had someone that could produce in, in tight special occasions. Uh, but, but Brian Robson was, was the catalyst, really. He was the one that, that drove us to that first league. I was going to ask you about Cantona. You 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 sensed that, didn't you? Um, what I mean, he's such a a character, someone that I think everyone was so interested in. What was he like as a teammate? Have you got any like classic Cantona stories from your your time working with Eric? Uh, he was he was pretty quiet to be fair in the dressing room. Um, we all thought he couldn't speak very good English, and then after about six months, but he, he would laugh at all the jokes in the dressing room. But then you sort of try and tell him something or ask him something. He just pretended he didn't understand it. It was about six or seven months later. We realised his wife was an English teacher. <laughs> and then he knew everything that was going on. Uh, but he, he just had this um, charisma, this attitude, this confidence, this self-belief uh, and, and, a, and a faith in his ability. Um, he trusted his ability, he trusted his game. He, he knew himself inside out. Uh, and he came up trumps for us whenever we're in need. Uh, yeah, at times, as, as players playing the same team, it was highly frustrating. 
He would give the ball away cheaply. He would, he would get sent off in games and put us down to 10 men. Um, it, it, at times, he was a bit of a liability. But when push comes to shove and, and we needed him in big games, we needed that one goal. I think the, the one title race, he, he scored the winner in the last six or seven games to, to win those games 1-0, which is just, just about sums him up. So we all knew how valuable he was. We, we knew what a character was. And we were prepared to, I don't know, look after him or whether it's support him or back him or whatever you want to say but, but we were all um we, we all knew what he meant to the team and, and, and how much we you know we valued him you played a number of games over the next few seasons as well like healthy amount of games you also wore the number five lee what 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 was that about was that just a number you were given or it's obviously not a number that <laughs> we associate with attacking players why was lee sharp given the number five shirt because that, that's the only single digit that was left to be fair. The, <laughs> manager, the manager gave me because Gary Pallister, as a centre-half, never liked wearing number five. Oh, OK. Neither did Steve Bruce. They wore four and six. Um, obviously, Brian Robson was seven, and then Cantona went to seven. Uh, they gave Giggsy 11. Mark Hughes was 10, I think. Um, so, so I got given five. And I wasn't, I wasn't best pleased as a winger. As you know, a big, a big meathead centre-half number. I thought, that's not very uh, flamboyant. So at the end of the first season, uh, I went to see the manager. said, listen, there's no chance I can change my number five shirt and in no uncertain terms he told me where to go and that was not an option. <laughs> I suppose back, back then though, like like people have squad numbers now and it's such a, you know, given, like everyone, but at that, that point you just wanted one to 11. It's not like going into a club now and saying, I will, I really like the 32 shirt because of this. So I suppose at that point, your mindset as a footballer was one to 11, wasn't it? That's it, well, one to 11 at the starting, starting lineup. They're your best players. That's who you put out and that's, that's the numbers you want. So, <laughs> Uh, yeah, if I was, I was. Do you know what? I didn't like five, but now I, I've actually grown to like it. Yeah. I like number five. Quite you cool. have mentioned um, England as well, Lee. Obviously, going back a bit, you did make your debut quite early on. How did you, you know, I imagine as I speak to footballers all the time, every young boy's dream is to, to play for England. How did you assess your, your first your call up and then your England career? Probably what was a tricky time, transitional time for England as a whole, anyway, under Graham Taylor. How did you, how did you look back on your England career? Uh, I'm extremely proud that I got that far in the game. Um, but yeah, it was a tricky time. The manager was under severe pressure. Uh, some of the senior pros um, weren't really keen on the manager. Didn't didn't think he, he knew enough about the game or wasn't playing the right game. I don't know. I was I was a young lad on the edges. I, I got I got called up from an under twenty one squad. Uh, I was really surprised I got called up. I know I, was, I know I know I was sort of going through a good spell at the club, but. For me, I didn't feel I was I was ready and I was good enough. John Barnes and Chris Waddle were two of my idols, and I thought there's no way I can go in there and, and take their place and be as good as them. Um, but then you sort of realise, you know, you're different. You're a different player. You bring a different thing to the game. Um, so, so dis- disappointing that we didn't make the World Cup in America. Yeah. Uh, and I di- and then I didn't play it a little bit more often. Um, but glad to have had the opportunity. Um, and it, and it is an, an, an unbelievable experience. Have you still got your caps? Where where do you keep your England caps? Yes, yeah, so I've got the, the caps are back at home, and I've just had my first England shirt sent because we're in Spain now. Obviously, I've just had it sent over because I've got the original one, um, my debut shirt signed. So I've just had it put in a frame and uh, and put up in the bar. Nice, nice. Um, looking back on your United career as well, there's always a goal that gets mentioned to me, and as someone said to me on Twitter as I was talking to you, it's the Bar's goal against Barcelona. Is that one of your favourite goals that you, you scored in the United shirt? Yeah, I think so. Just because, I mean, I suppose the, the cheekiness of the goal itself, but then against against Barcelona, 
in a packed Old Trafford in a in a in a midweek under the floodlights, uh, and, and we were getting we were getting a little bit of a, a good idea off Barcelona at the time, and United had never been beaten at home in, in Europe. Yeah. So to uh, to score that against what was a, such a strong Barcelona team is probably go down as my favourite. Yeah. How did you relish these European nights? Because obviously that was a new thing because with English Cup had been banned from Europe. And you had the '91 Cup Winners Cup Finals, where you were part of. What? How was you in, in European nights? Because it was such an, you know, a next level again uh, for Lee Sharp. What, what, what did you? What your experiences like for those games? Uh, I, I loved it. I, I loved. Uh, well, I love nighttime games anyway. Under the yeah. floodlights, I always think there's a there's a different atmosphere to to a Saturday afternoon. Um, you know, and then and then the music would play and the fans would be loud, and, and it would turn into. A proper European night, you would have places where you would go with flares, with flags, and you, you didn't really see that in in normal domestic football. And I remember seeing that as a as a young lad growing up and thinking that's the sort of atmosphere uh, that I'd like to play. And, and, and when you get the flares and the flags going uh, and the music, it's uh, it's the airs on the back of your neck, the tingles are all through your body, uh, and it's just an, an incredible, incredible game to play. Did you play in Galatasaray? Were you, you were part of that squad with the famous "Welcome to Hell" and all that. What was what was that like? Yeah, that was that was scary. That was petrifying. I mean, they were turning up "Welcome to Hell" at the airport, and then uh, we stayed in a hotel on the river. And boats were going up and down the river all night, sounding horns, playing music, shouting out "Welcome to Hell, you're all going to die." Uh, the, the bus got bombarded with bricks and was getting glass smashed and, and getting shaken. We had armed armed military police shepherding us into the ground and, and down the tunnel onto the pitch so it was, it was pretty uh pretty extreme but um again what, what an atmosphere i mean we, we got to the ground two hours before kickoff to try and avoid some of the crowds and we got there and both sides of the pitch um the, the fan the ground was absolutely packed and we went out to see the pitch before the game and one side would be absolutely silent while the other side chanted something and then they would chant something back and that is like oh my god we are literally going to get killed here it was uh, it was phenomenal wow it was um, i won't keep you too much longer but i wanted to, to move past the you know your departure at united i mean you didn't play in the 96 cup final i mean was that a spark to you that it was time your time at united was was ending was that sort of instigated the move that summer yeah i think i've been taking quite a lot of stick off the manager um and i just felt uh, I, I might have needed a bit of a change and to see what else was out there. I, mean, I love Manchester United, I love the lads, I love, I love everything about it. It was a really tough decision and a, and a long decision, really. Uh, but then the, the 96 FA Cup final, the, the game before, when we won at Middlesbrough, I think it was Middlesbrough, we won the league. Yeah, I remember that. So, so on that Sunday, we won, at we won at Middlesbrough. The Wednesday before that, I played in the team centre midfield. I played really well. I think I scored a goal at Old Trafford, and then on the on the Sunday I went to Middlesbrough. Uh, it was only three substitutes at the time. So the manager said to me, Middlesbrough, listen, I'm going to leave you out. I'm bringing Nicky Butt back because he's come back from injury or suspension. Uh, he's a little bit more defensive minded than they've got. Janino, so I just wanted to take care of that. I was like, yeah, okay, fine, I get you. And then got to the ground, and I, and I wasn't one of the subs. I wasn't even getting stripped, and we had Steve Bruce who got a snapped hamstring from two weeks ago on the bench with his kit on, knowing that he couldn't get on because he was injured and that's when I just thought you know I played well on Wednesday I can't even get into the the first 14 uh, and he's putting someone on that's got a snap hamstring then you know maybe it's time for me to, to look elsewhere and then he pulled me in on the Monday and said uh, I could see we're disappointed 
Uh, he said, but I'm going to put you on the bench in the FA Cup on Saturday. I was like, I don't care what you're going to do. I said, you've done my, you, you, you know, you've, uh, you, you've done what you've had to do. He said, but I'm leaving my captain at the FA Cup. I said, no, you're not. Your captain's got a snap time streak. You can't play. You're not leaving anybody out for me. I said, don't talk to me like that. Um, I said, you've, uh, you've sort of done what you've done and let's just, I said, do what you've got to do for the FA Cup final. I said, I really don't give a shit. And uh, that's where it sort of ended. <laughs> where did that, I mean, was Ferguson someone that always knew that in his head that he had a lifespan for players and maybe at that point for you that had ended, whether it was rightly or wrongly, did you ever get that feeling? Because from the outside, sometimes I get that from Ferguson over the years that he feels like he's had his period, then he moves on. Did you ever get that feeling? Was was that was what it was at the point? No, no, I don't. I don't think he got it in his head to sell me. I don't think he was planning on selling me. Um, I, I went into the pre-season. I, I, I sort of had time out over the summer and had a chat with my family and my friends. And um, I mentioned it to Gary Pallister because I was going to write a, a, a transfer request, and he sort of said, "No, what are you doing?" And then sort of half helped me write my transfer request. Uh, and then Brian Kidd came to me when I, I didn't actually hand the request in. Um, I spoke to Roy Keane and Roy Keane's solicitor was going to act on my behalf and, and he sort of rang the manager and said, you know, are you open to offers for Lee Sharp? And Brian Kidd came to see me and said, listen, I've told the manager not to tell you. I think you're too good. You can't be let go. They just signed Jordi Cruyff and Calvin Borski. Uh, so they've obviously got cover. But Kidd was like, no, you need to you need to stay. He said, you're too good. I'm, I'm going to tell him. You know, my decision would be, to, I know it's not going to, I know you're not going to be happy about it, but I don't think you should be allowed to leave. Um, in the end, the manager sort of agreed with it. Put a big price tag on my head, which was a bit... I was expecting about three million because I'd not really played regular the last couple of seasons. And, and at two and a half, three million, I've got a couple of Spanish clubs that were interested and a couple of other clubs. But as soon as put five million on my head, it sort of limited the, the, the number of clubs that, that we're going to pay. You eventually moved to Leeds, though. How did... I mean, were Leeds the only team? And what made Leeds a, a prospect for the year? What... what, what sold it to you to go to, to Ellen Road? Uh, I think, uh, I don't know, there were, there were a couple of teams in, I think Arsenal were interested, but uh, they weren't giving Bruce Rioch any money at the time. Uh, I spoke with David Platt on the England trips, and I think he was um, working behind the scenes trying to get me there. I'm not sure whether I'm legally allowed to say that. But, <laughs> uh, and there were a couple of Spanish clubs, like I say, that were really interested, but could, just didn't want, didn't want to pay the price. And I spoke to Howard Wilkinson, he was rebuilding the team. Leeds had just been beaten in the FA, was it League Cup or FA Cup? By Aston Villa, 3 0. Yeah. Um, so Howard was reshaping and, and revamping the team. He brought Lee Bowyer from, from Charlton, he brought Nigel Martin. Uh, Ian Rush had come out from Liverpool to bring a bit of the Liverpool ethos in, in the coaching methods. Um, so, the, so there was a, uh, they got a, a lot of young lads that were just trying to bring on Woodgate, Joel. Uh, Alan Smith. So, so it was a team, you know, that were that were sort of on the ascendancy as well. And and, and Howard, I, I really liked Howard. Uh, the club was still up north. I, I didn't really want to go to London, if if I'm honest. Uh, it was a tough move because of the supporters and how close the rivalry is. But when I got there, the lads made it really good for me. And, and obviously, the worst thing that could happen happened. And Howard got sacked after a month. And, and I mean, you suffered as well, didn't you, from injury in your time at Ellen Road as well? Was that just just a, a combination of, of, of time and, and not enough time out, maybe at some points? Uh, no, that was that was just. I mean, uh, 
how it, how it got sacked, George Graham came in after, after a month. Um, and, you know, you ask any player that played that season, the football was dour. It was, it was defensive. It was horrendous. Um, so, so that close season, at the end of the first season, I did a bit of training myself. Uh, I went back to the club and thought, uh, you know, if I need to get out of here, then I need to be playing well and I need to be doing the right things. Uh, I came back playing really well. And, and George Graham came in and said, uh, a week before the season started, he said, you've been our best player pre-season. Let's get back in England team, scoring goals, making goals, enjoying your football. I was like, right, come on, then let's have a really good season. And then the final pre-season game before the season started at Forest, uh, I've tried to nick the ball away from someone on a dry, sticky pitch and my studs have got caught and I've, I've snapped my cruise shirt. So I was out for a whole season. So uh, horrible timing, depressing timing, um, but something I just had to sort of accept and, and get on with. I was looking at pictures of you earlier. What was the motivation by the bleached blonde hair when you were at Leeds? That, that was certainly a, a different Lee really Sharp. <laughs> uh, I have no idea. I've, 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 uh, I've experimented with a lot, with a lot of hairdos over the years. And uh, that was just probably not one of my better decisions, if I'm honest. But it's a great it was fun at the time. There's a great picture of you and Gary Pallister. I'll have to put it up, put it on the Twitter feed and tag you in. Um, I think he's at Borough at the time, and it's yeah, I'll have to I'll have to get it downloaded. It's a great picture, <laughs> Pally. Um, you had a brief spell at Sampdoria, didn't you, during this time when when obviously you were coming back from injury? How did I mean? How did that happen? Sampdoria is one of those great clubs of that era as well that we all remember that you know the great players that played at the kits with the, you know the laced collars that you had at United as well. What was that experience like playing in Serie A? Uh, again, mix. It was David Platt, funnily enough, that, that was manager and took me over there. Should have been your agent, uh, that, shouldn't he? <laughs> it, it should have been, yeah. Uh, so, so he got me. I, I was just coming back from the, well, the season after I'd done my cruise ship and I'd not played a lot uh, at all in the first team. So I wasn't match fit, but I was sort of fit, if you know what I mean, from training. So um, I went over, I think, January the 1st, and Platt he said, listen, we'll get, you, we'll get you fit slowly. We'll play for an hour. We'll play for a half and, and we'll give you a weights program we'll get you properly fit but you know three quarters fit Lee Sharp is, is yeah. better than some of the players I've got here so so come over and have a go and, and then again there's a, a running theme here Platty got sort of pushed out or sacked after a month of me being there uh, Spalletti the old manager came back in he said listen I, I don't know you I've got my players I know my players so I'm not really going to play you and at that time the, the transfer win, tra- transfer deadline was March um, so I decided to, to try and get back to the UK before the transfer deadline. And that's is that when you moved on to Bradford? Is that kind of where we... That's where, that's where I moved to Bradford, yeah. Which was obviously a very 90s, towards the end of the 90s club, because they had that spurt with you and, and getting promoted to the Premier League. I suppose that was what dynamic for you from going, obviously, from Man United, where they were obviously chasing titles, you've won all these titles, to kind of an upstart club come out of nowhere in that division. What, what was that like being at Bradford? Uh, well, I, I, went, I went to Bradford in the, in the March time for, for like six weeks or so, two months uh, in, in the title running. So they were second in the Premiership, chasing promotion. So the club was really on a high. The, the, the bunch of lads were all full of confidence going in. Paul Jaw was, was was creating an atmosphere in the dressing room that was that had really good camaraderie, a really good team spirit, uh, and it was really good to get to be a part of. You know, I remember I've not played football for sort of 18 months, two years, and I've been at Sampdoria, not speaking the language. So to come into such a, an up, happy, confident vibe in the dressing room was, was amazing. To get promotion with them was, was fantastic. Uh, 
and then to be in the Premier League with them again, it was, uh, it was it was difficult. Every week was a fight and a scrap. But again, great team spirit, great camaraderie, and a great bunch of lads. Yeah, well, before we go, Lee, I want to just ask you as well that obviously we talked all the way through the nineties. What for you? We've kind of touched on this already, though. But what what changed the most from? Because I always think if you look at snapshot from nineteen ninety and then nineteen ninety nine, football is the decade that changed football forever. Is I call it on a podcast that we've done we've done before. What what, how, what was the biggest changes for you during that decade? The biggest change. Uh... I don't know. I don't think I don't think you can have as big a change on the surface and on the front as that without lots and lots of little changes yeah. behind the scenes. I think obviously more money, more television, so so people become more recognisable. Uh, I think the the pitches change from mud baths and sand sand baths to absolute carpets. Yeah. Uh, I think you've got. Um, uh, Dietitians and nutritionists and weight coach. We, you know, and to, at United, we never really had a weight coach. At Leeds, we did. We just got one. A nutritionist came into United just before I left mid nineties. Uh, I think the science behind everything now, the tactical awareness about everything. I think there's a lot of little things that have added up to a, to a huge change. And um, I, I think you probably there's, there's too many changes that you can that you could wouldn't be able to put your finger on just one. I don't think. And post-football, of course, Lee, you've dabbled in all kinds of, of stuff. You know, we saw you on Celebrity <laughs> Love Island, what it was, and, and then you've even been in Coronation Street. I mean, what was that like as well? No, I, I haven't actually been in Coronation Street. Is that, that a Wikipedia? Is that a Wikipedia? You know what? I read that, and then I Googled the hell out of it and couldn't find it. So I thought, I'd ask yeah. you about it. Where have they yeah. got that from then? I have no idea where they got it. I've never even watched it. Never <laughs> mind being on it. Uh, you should claim it. You should claim it, Lee. <laughs> I think... Uh, I think I've had a couple of drinks with a few of the cast in the past, but that's that's as close to Coronation Street as I've got. Um, yeah, I mean, a bit of reality. Football, I was just at a loose end and I had a couple of phone calls for reality. I thought, why not? Life, life for living and having a laugh. It's uh, as long as you don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah. Uh, and, and and through it, I've, you know, I've been very fortunate to do some amazing things. Um, five weeks in Fiji on the Love Island. Uh, Anton Deck doing... Bob Slane in Austria. Um, it's been it's been a whirlwind, and you know, the ice skating was was absolutely bizarre. Um, Do you enjoy that? Was it tough? No, <laughs> not one little bit. No, I've not I've not picked up a pair. I've not put a pair of skates on since the last show I did. I can I've never touched it ever since. <laughs> Such a tough sport, and it hurts when you fall over. <laughs> I can well imagine. I can well imagine. Well, and and now uh, you're in Spain, and you've just opened a bar, I believe. So, I mean, how's that going? Yeah, uh, moved to Spain. I've got two kids, a four and a five year old, uh, and we've moved to Spain. We've opened a sports bar called Sharpies. That wasn't part of the plan when we moved here at all. Um, it's just something that sort of we've stumbled into, but going well. Uh, my missus got into the sort of marketing and social media side of it. Got a couple of other partners in it once a bar owner and, and fast food chain owner um, from Spain that lives just down the road in Benidorm. Uh, I've got another kid who's a Irish lad, Adrian Adrian Roach, who's uh, got his own bottled water company and his own gyms in Ireland. So we've got a nice little nucleus of a team there, and, and you know we're just getting getting our head around what it takes to to make a good sports bar. So uh, so far so good. We've only been open a couple of months, but. We can see down the line that it's going to be uh, it's going to be very good for us, Stop and always good, always always good fun to go to work when you know you're going to a pub. 
<laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. Uh, right, I'm going to finish on. You mentioned just funny enough drinking with the uh, Coronation Street cars. I, alone, I was sorry, I was looking at pictures of you earlier. There's a great shot of you take that at Old Trafford, and there's you and Gary Barlow. It, there must have been sort of promotional thing. Did you kind? Were they the sort of guys you were mixing with in that scene at that time? Did you kind of see them out, um, or do you remember that day that take that arrived at? Did a photo shoot with the players at Old Trafford? Yeah, I, I remember it because. Uh... I've just been a bit of a altercation outside a club in Stockport where someone had decided to kick me in the face while I was sat in the back of a car. So I actually had like a, a, a bruised yeah. nose and a, and, a, and a black eye, which I had the cap on, which I was trying to hide and stay out of the way. And then, uh, obviously, we, obviously, the photographer and the press there are after me and gigs and all the younger ones to have yeah. photos and take that. And I'm trying to hide at the back. And yeah, the manager was giving me scowls and frowns and... Uh, but yeah, we, we we sort of bumped into them quite a few times, and and even now when you know you, you go to sort of certain charity dinners or auction nights or, or different things like that, you bump into them. We still uh, I still have a, a lovely chat to all of them. They were, they were really down to earth, cool lads that, that just had a a real big talent. Good stuff. Well, Lee, thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. Um, it's been really appreciated. Absolutely. I'll let you. Thank know. you very much. Awesome. No, no worries at all. Cheers, Cheers Ash. Good. See you, mate. Good Bye. Good Bye. Cheers, Paul.